So we got a few more minutes. Uh, the the way I want to handle today's talk, and we'll see who else ends up joining. Uh, I laid out my uh, set of things uh, for today's chat. We're going to be going through basically the items in order. I'm going to see how far we can get, uh, and we will spend some time uh, going back over some other things. I'll re-explain this. If there's anything that I didn't put inside of that order or the major points of the chapter, now is the time to definitely say. No one, no one wrote or said anything in the chat uh, over the last 24 hours, so I'm assuming generally people don't give a shit about how this review's done, so I'm happy to take it and run with it. I like... I think these are definitely some of the more important points. The four theses, absolutely. I think it... I also like that you want to go back over... Um, I got the kick out of what used the word fuck in there. But uh, I, I like that we're, it looks like we're also going to be talking about the role of love in desiring production. Yes. Which I think is, is worthwhile. So I like what you've laid out. Yeah, they spend a lot of time on the fact of how sex and libido sort of plays in and how there's no difference between uh, sexual libido, political libido, desire at large, any of these things. It's all essentially the same. That's not an easy thing to sort of break through so i figured we'd spend some time on it but again we're gonna wait until probably five after to start <sighs> my coffee has not kicked in jesus what a morning um all right <sighs> thank all of you for joining us today as we continue or finish our reading of anti-oedipus uh, it has been a long time it's our first meeting of the new year and we are going to be reviewing the final section or dash five, the second positive task. Uh, it is an, an immeasurably long section. I can't believe we actually made it through this thing. I was I was reading through it last night and this morning. Uh, but we are going to try our best to try to review the more difficult concepts inside of it. Uh, any questions you have, don't hesitate to toss into AO Discussion Chat Live. We will go over all of those things. Uh, Excellent. And we have a number of other readings that are happening. Uh, check out our announcements channel. Check out our calendar. We're catching back up on getting this server uh, sort of top notch so people can find the things that they But I fully expect us to be spending uh, a little bit longer on a few things. Uh, Ken writes, uh, thus spoke Zarathustra is picking back up with Adder's Bite tomorrow on the Continental Philosophy server. I know Ken is Kent is back from his uh, little winter hiatus. Uh, because we all need a break. We all need breaks. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and dive into uh, the second positive task, which is, as I was saying, uh, exceptionally long section of uh, 40, 40 some pages of incredibly dense writing, some paragraphs that go multiple pages. I've tried to break this down into a handful of uh, concepts for us to go over. The first one I want to spend our time on is really the first paragraph uh, where we talk about uh, ultimately social production, regimes, desiring machines, how they fit into all of these things and how social investments happen. That very, very sort of early paragraph. Um, I'm gonna take a crack at how I have interpreted this, uh, this section and this, this concept around it. One of the things they're really d dying for us to understand is that uh, it's not so much that they've, and I, I had this misunderstanding myself prior to this specific reading, that we have desiring machines and then we have social machines. 
One of the really difficult things to grasp sort of in this entire thing is that we're ultimately talking about, uh, as they talk about the molar and the molecular, that the desiring machines are the sort of tiny semi-individualistic or individualistic versions of what's happening inside the social machines. But there's no desiring machines that exist outside of social machines, just as there are no social machines that exist without desiring machines as their sort of components. I think so, because desiring machines and social machines are simultaneity, right? The molar and the molecular work as a way of, um, uh, so it's a perspective on the two, right? When we're talking about the molar, we're talking about uh, social machines in that manner. And that helps us kind of like talk about the simultaneity, but also talk about what they call the regimes. Yeah, and this is what uh, Varun posted very quickly, and he posted it a couple times on the server just, I think, to drive the point home, but I'm going to read it. Um, in terms of something like anti-Oedipus, people seem to struggle by asking questions as to what comes first, desire or the organization of machines. However, such an either-or question is missing the point, as they fail to understand the relationship of eminence between desire and the organization of machines. Flows of desire power the organization of the machine. The flows of desire themselves power the organization. Yet simultaneously, the organization of machines guide the flows of desire. I believe the body without organs, as a system of recorded rules, allows this process of eminent simultaneity where desire is both the cause and effect, as is seen by the Sevrabat Sir. You can't have desire without it being organized, and you can't have machines without it being organized by desire. And that's essentially, he's talking about what's happening at that unconscious level. Uh, with the second positive task, it's important that we extrapolate from what is happening with the desiring machines at that level and start talking about how they fit in or how they are part of these larger social machines, these these larger regimes, these uh, gregarious largesse, as we will go over at some point. But uh, the the reason I, I, I bring this up is because uh, they talk a little bit uh, towards that very ending, and it's part of the thing I wanted to ask and get people's thoughts on. Um, we contrasted, uh, sorry, again, uh, staking out the perverse re-territorializations and as the movement of the schizophrenic deterritorializations. We contrasted them as the two major types of equally social investments, one sedentary and by univocalizing, and of a reactionary or fascist tendency, the paranoiac investments, the other nomadic and polyvocal of a revolutionary tendency, the schizo investment. In fact, in the schizoid declaration, I am of a race inferior for all eternity. I'm a beast of black. We are all German Jews. Uh, the historical social field is no less invested than in the paranoiac. I am one of your kind from the same place as you. I'm a pure Aryan of a superior race for all time. The last, that last grouping of comments here, uh, struck me as something I, I I'm having trouble sort of reconciling the two sides of this because it seems to me what they're saying here is that these things uh, essentially are happening with the simultaneity as well that the reactionary the nomadic uh, the, these things are also invested the sorry the the schizo is also invested in the paranoiac and vice versa well if if we take if we start with desire I don't know like the there's a there's a drying machine. I don't know if it. You're you're, with... you're fine. I've got I've got cleaners okay. on the audio. You're set, buddy. Perfect. So uh, if we take desire for as the basis of everything, uh, so desire uh, desire is not you know there's no inner quality to desire. It just it it just you know erupts and flows, 
and you know there's two tendencies in which uh, the it can express itself either like on the paranoid side on the or on the schizo side um so one on one side you know it's how it structures something how it it uh, it stabilizes and it fixes uh, either like structures or meaning or certain authorities on the other side it's how it puts the flow back into movement so they're always going to be there both of them at the same time because even like if you structure something you know it, it tends to to degrade to actually move away from its structuration So there's always those two movements uh, into everything. Life is like this also, like a body. Like a body is something that is, you know, being fixated, but at the, at the same time degrading. There's like everything that passes through us. So it's it's it, it seems difficult to understand at first, but at the same time, if we look at concrete examples, uh, you know, metal, you know, like... Uh, G, uh, geological stratas or anything like rocks everything is both uh structured and destructured at the same time if you want yeah i, th I think that's right because um this is their their point about the simultaneity right as investments are made um they coexist right so there's a simultaneity so when we talk later about love we'll talk they, they talk about love as a kind of indebts of these investments right so When you get the schizoid investment of like, we are of the inferior race, we are all German Jews, we find that present um, in the socio-historical field, right, in in the social realm, alongside the investment of, but I am of the master race, right. So like, to uh, to Roger's point, we find this is kind of the delirium they're talking about. There's the simultaneity there, and they don't necessarily. It's not so much that they contradict each other, like it's the, in the sense that one of them's got to be right. It's that they're both present and effective. Right. Yeah. Sorry if I brought it out of the individual field, as you know, of of uh, the, the more psychological aspect. But I, you know, I'm always talking from like other books, but. Um, Yeah, so it's what 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 Jack just said, and you know, if we want to bring it back to individual desire, there's also like in, in us, in one individual, for example, there's always going to be those two poles, and you know, we we oscillate between those two poles all the time. You know, anxiety or uh, either you know our um, our more pathological sides are trying to find meaning, trying to fix stuff, but at the same time, there's our drives that actually deteriorates and pushes us outward well so the reason so. this last parag this last part of the paragraph is a question i have is i've seen it i've heard it interpreted and read it interpreted in a couple different ways um the primary way i've heard people talk about this is that uh, their references here i'm the race superior for all eternity beast of black we're all german jews is uh placing themselves at the lowest possible place that there could be in a social hierarchy versus the historical social field That the paranoiac formula uh, enables a person to basically trace themselves back to God, uh, very similar to the despots, sort of, it's we're the best, we're the most important, I'm the most important, I have that certainty. But I've also heard the the, the second part, yes, and I don't think anyone disagrees with that, the paranoiac pushes towards the certainty of your own grandeur. But the uh, first part uh, has a, a distinct part of uh, uh, persecution, 
race inferior, a beast of black, German Jews. The examples that they use here and throughout the book uh, really are about sort of the self-persecuting or the identification with persecuted groups. Uh, uh, that Maybe that that's the persecuting group that has all the power on the paranoiac side, the persecuted group on the schizo side who has none of the power. That's a, it's a different interpretation, and I don't really have a clean line on that. So to tackle that, let's talk about in terms of becomings, right, and codes and territories. So how I understand this is like, it's not that necessarily they're referring to like clear groups and that they're talking about um, more more directly like the intensities and the codes that um, allow for something like a master race or that uh, allow for something like uh, German Jews or to be a black or to be a beast here. That That's the first place to start is they're not trying, I don't think they're trying to make it like, I don't think we want to read it in terms of like an essentialism to groups. I'm not saying that we are, but just to start with that clarification. So I think where they're moving here is that the schizophrenic in terms of the deterritorializing and the decoding and that, it allows for one to become in that sense. So if we look at the paranoiac there, the only becoming available to people is that of the Aryan or the master race, right? It's the majoritarianism. And that's that's important. It's not the majority, it's the majoritarianism. It's the the becoming that's open to them as that as being part of like the uh the exclusivity. In terms of the schizophrenic, the schizophrenic allows for one to become, right? So like they give the example of uh, example of Judge Schraber, where Judge Schraber becomes Aryan, becomes Mongol, becomes beast. In this sense, Judge Schreiber does have the schizophrenic flow in the sense that there's a series of becomings that they're um, they're moving through. So they're being recoded and re-territorialized in that sense. Yeah, I think there's a little thing that we need to say about the, the majoritarian. Um, there, there's no becoming into the, the molar. The, it's it's already the standard. So the, the, become, the becoming is not the sedentarized kind of identity. It's the nomadic possibilities or you know the 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 openness of the minotaurian so there's there's always this difference one is can move and the other cannot move one can escape you know the categories or the capturing um aspect of the state while you know the 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 majoritarian is the capturing um aspect so if we see it in those two poles, one that escapes and one that captures, it can help us understand this a little bit better. And you know, uh, what what is a minority um, in that sense? Uh, it's not really the persecuted; it's the one that escapes the capture, and one that is not defining uh, the the molar. So you're you're just like always like a little bit on the outside, not to say on the margin, but something that is. Uh, yeah, something that is not captured. So, like, if if we put this into those terms, it can help us a little bit to uh, understand a little, a little bit better. And you know, the minotarian is not in a sense or a crystallized identity is something that can become um, majority. It can become molar because it it can be captured and integrated into the state and change the the, the standards or the norms or whatever else you know. And so, there's always this 
flux that is going. And the more you know minorities are integrated into the molar, we more the more we produce other minorities. So yeah, and just to make a quick point, and I, I want to make that distinction too because I don't want to, I don't want to make the paranoia I can do a form of narcissism here, and. and and part of that part of the reason I'm making this clarification really briefly is that especially coming out of cycle going into psychoanalysis this way, you know, that kind of tool is there. So that's the other thing is I, I want to clarify that like the majoritarianism is not necessarily somebody's narcissism. So the next paragraph actually says something that I, I think and again, this is why we're I, I think disagrees a bit with you, Roger. Or maybe okay. maybe I'm misunderstanding. Um, the way that they're talking about the molecular, which is the schizo, and the molar, which is the paranoiac, that's the, the other sort of part of these poles. There's no such thing as a schizomolar investment or a paranoiac molecular. Um, the, the answer is, as they say, that everywhere there exists the molecular and the molar. All is one and the same. So when you have the majoritarian you naturally have the minoritarian. In order to have the Aryan side, you have to have the people who are the persecuted Jews, is how I read that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're always defined, you know, as, as, as somebody, uh, something that is going to be minoritarian. Um, it's, it's a difference from the molar, you know, there's a whole system of domination, but like you, you, uh, you find those categories there as a differentiation. And, you know, as a woman is a differentiation from men, as, you know, people with disabilities are a differentiation from people with, you know, without disabilities. And the concepts of race function into the same way. And, you know, if, if the system was structured differently, uh, the, the minoritarian perspectives would be different. You know, if we would have like a full disabled women's society, you know, it's the other poles that would be minoritarian. So they're always in relation with one another, but they don't they don't contain one another in um in the sense that they're all all the same, you know, there's always a part of differentiation playing. No, I don't follow. I, mean, I, I follow to a point. So the, the, the core concept, if we think of the socialist, this large tapestry, that there are parts of it uh, at this molar level that are sort of, you know, more intense than like, and again, in layers of intensity, uh, latitudes, longitudes, however, you know, phrasing they want to do it. But that throughout this entire thing, there's different layers where different levels of these sort of molecular occurrences happen uh, within it because they're all part of that same thing. The, the question I'm having then is when they talk about the schizoid declaration, again, I am a race inferior for all eternity. They, they go through here and it's a very specific. They're constantly talking through persecuted, separated, minoritarian people with that persecuted part is the part that I'm fascinated by because uh, it's also uh, the way Guattari talks about in Chaosophy. It's it's the the terminology that they very much use is 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 focused around this idea of the persecuted minority uh, for the schizoid investments. And I wondered if that's just me overreading into a thing, which would not be a first time. Um, but then again, I always say you can't overread <laughs> to lose. So figured I'd ask. So 
if we use the example of like, um, you know, gay rights activism or LGBT rights activism, right? There's a sense in which the majoritarianism can be said that, that can be said to occur through that of rights, right? So to be in the majoritarian, to be in the the master race here is to have access to the rights, yeah. So in this sense, right, this isn't necessarily a question of persecution unless you look at it from the perspective of, well, who has rights and who doesn't, right? Should there be a right to marry um, outside of the heterosexual marriage? You know, that's a question we can talk about. But I think for Deleuze and Guadir, what they're getting at is, in the sense of a line of escape, it is possible for the LGBTQ plus community in this sense, instead of focusing on rights here and being part of the being becoming within the majoritarian, it is possible for them um, in this sense, these codes and these territorialities, right? The intensities that are opened up here allow for a sense of becoming away from that, that moves somewhere else. So yes, they are focusing on like, you know, they're talking about, um, they're talking about beasts here. So they're talking about animals. They're talking about blats. And I believe they use a stronger word than that. So they are focusing on like uh, th those minority groups there. But I don't know if they're necessarily trying to say like the persecuted is the potential. I think what they're getting at is these kind of become, um, these kind of becomings are open here um, in contrast to the majority because, and this is kind of what Roger was alluding to, right? If we were to replace, they give the example of going from a, a patriarchy to a matriarchy would be to reproduce the very problem, right? The majoritarianism has does have a kind of uh, becoming in itself, right? Even though it's a very flat becoming in that sense, it's very exclusive. But it does, it is possible to change, right? So today it could be a white male, tomorrow it could be a white female in a sense. Does that make sense? It helps. It does help. Um, makes sense is a, is a larger thing that I've got to decide on whether or not it does, but it does help sort of make it through. Also, what Angus is saying, just to, repart, just to repeat it, uh, I think part of it is that the minoritarian cannot become majoritarian. That would be deceased being minoritarian. So there's a kind of necessary subjugation inherent in being minoritarian. Um, I, I think that fits more with how I've been reading their talk through because they go on and again to be very clear they go on to talk about in this uh, paragraph the the schizophrenic uh, process is what we're really studying here not the schizophrenic the schizophrenic uh, escapes society and just disappears from it whereas uh, the schizophrenic process enables the revolutionary to actually utilize uh, an understanding of how the social is built in order to collapse it as you know, part of the escape and to force part of the social to escape with them. So it's see, a, see, 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 you're mentioning the escape. So like the, the, the base of the, the politics of Deleuze and Guattari is, is the escape. It's saying that, you know, it, you, to become nomad, to actually, because when you're into this, this dominated position, it, you know, there's, there, there's possibilities that open there and the potentials can pass into the actual and it is those uh, conditions that allow for the possibility of either resistance or, you know, opening uh, what they would say, like a line of flight to escape and be like uh, imperceptible, you know, just to to escape the capture of the states. 
So you know, there's the 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 concept of escape is is uh, is fundamental here into their politics because it's not a, it's like to create a war machine because you know, that they're they're going to talk to the, about this in other books, but it's to create a war machine that goes against the state and allows for deterritorialization. Hmm. Yeah, and in this sense, that's why I made the point about the essentialism too, because like when we're talking about something like white male or or these like you know the Aryans, the master race, the beasts, the black, we're talking about at least how I read the losing lottery, how these are structured through code. Well, I shouldn't say structured, how these are constructed through codes and in relation to intensities and effects. So right. It's not that someone is naturally um, a beast or naturally black in this sense. It's that they're they're affected and coded during this desiring production essence. They're moving through the territories, but they also get recoded and re-territorialized. It's and it's interesting to consider because uh, again, the first thesis of schizoanalysis is this idea that every investment is both uh, is uh, we get the wording right. Uh, molar and social, that in the investments that we, we maintain and that we take part in don't exist at the molecular level. They are social. They, they exist at the uh, sort of aggregate level of molecular, but they are molar and they are social. So when we talk about uh, how our investments capture these things and how these things operate, that they operate at the social and the molar level. So I, it's the first... Uh, Theses that they go over here, and it's worth, uh, yes, starting the discussion on that. Before we get to that, I just want to highlight on 341 to, to expand on this discussion and bridge into that first thesis. Right. Uh, so they talk about the large aggregates, the large forms of gregariousness. So that's something to keep in mind when we're talking about the majoritarianism in that sense. But I also want to highlight real quick, uh, in a more large sense, where they talk about the schizophrenic. Is it, it's not necessarily that the schizophrenic is always res, res, revolutionary in this sense. Um, just because deterritorializing happen, happens doesn't necessarily mean a revolutionary potential um, has been invested. So they write, there is a whole world of difference between the schizo and the revolutionary. The difference between the one who escapes and the one who knows how to make what he is escaping escape, collapsing a filthy drainage pipe causing a deluge to break loose, liberating a flow, resecting a skits. The schizo is not revolutionary, but the schizophrenic process, in terms of which the schizo is merely the interruption or the continuation in the void, is the potential for revolution. To those who say that escaping is not courageous, we answer, what is not escape and social investment at the same time? The choice is between one of the two poles. The paranoia counter-escape that motivates all the conformist, reactionary, and fascizing investments, and the schizophrenic escape convertible into a revolutionary investment. Can you give us a little bit of analysis on that? Uh, yeah. So the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is just to say that like, when we're talking about the paranoia and the schizophrenic, there is this delirium in terms of oscillation in that. But I want to clarify, too, that with deterritorializing and decoding, um, there is still this potential there for a reactionary investment, right? So like they talk about elsewhere with the diagram on, I think it's 281, the difference between a breakthrough and breakdown, which they expand on in this chapter or in this section, I believe around where Arden um, 
science is at. But to to highlight this, right, they want to, I think they want to clarify that the schizo-revolutionary as opposed to the schizophrenic, the schizophrenic process that does a revolutionary investment um, doesn't simply just deterritorialize and reterritorialize, right? It allows for a line of escape, which seems to be something we were centering on uh, toward the end of our discussion is like, in this sense, right, like to, to go back to the, the question of like, do we do rights or do we do something else? There's a way in which something schizo-revolutionary would take what's going on in this assemblage and allow for an escape to move um, outward, right? So like the deterritorializing, the decoding allows for a revolutionary investment in the sense that what's taken from this assemblage um, can kind of differentiate in that sense. I'm I'm having trouble following because I'm I'm trying to think of real world examples or ways to describe this that are more allegorical because the 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 words in theory I mean yes we've we've read through the chapter but actually grasping it I'm having more of a of trouble doing so 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 when we're talking about the investments in the molar um they they talk they go on on 342 uh, let us recall the major traits of molar formation or of a form of gregariousness. Uh, unity can be a biological unity of a species, structural unity of a socius, an organism, social or living. It is relation to this new order that the partial objects of molecular order appear as lack at the same time that the whole self is said to be lacked by partial objects. They, they go on and on. They describe uh, sort of the creation of these gregarious herd instincts that then uh, basically, because our desiring machines are parts of them, um, they actually... Uh, as as Varun was talking about back in that, um, uh, the the machines become organized in order to serve these sort of larger uh, gregarious outcroppings of molar investments, and desire becomes shaped by that with blockages, with disjunctions, whatever it may be, uh, with connections. The the we our our machines get organized that way in an unconscious sense. Am I following that generally right? Because I think that if that's the case, there's a handful of really solid, like real world examples I'm sure we could come up with to describe this better. Yeah, it is kind of difficult because we've got to talk about what's happening in terms of like opening up the comments to make it really simple, right? Um, and I think that does happen. Well, I, this I mean, we can, we can get to that point, but I think I'd, I'd like to discuss like the text as it's written, they don't bring up becomings for some time in this section. Uh, right now, they're really diving into this idea that uh, every investment is social and in any case bears upon a social historical field. Investments are so social, investments are molar. That is their first theses. And what that tends to mean to me is that we don't invest in things on a individual or individual level. Uh, we only do so as part of a larger gregarious norm, the herd instinct that they go into for the next handful of chapters. I won't say it's a BWO, but it's uh, pushing towards the way a BWO operates. Um, but we do, we become part of these sort of things and our desires match up with that. Where they, they, they step in line like good little soldiers in order to uh, get the gregariousness uh, sort of realized. It feels like a simple question, and we should be able to answer it at some point here soon. <laughs> All right, re-ask re, re, uh, re your question. Okay, 
if every investment is social uh, and molar, uh, those investments by nature reorganize the desire at molecular levels inside of it because molar and molecular essentially exist as uh, you know part of the same social machines. Uh, so as our investments change, they can only be molar, uh, period. As our investments change, so do our desires, because our desires are part of that same machine. In the same way that if I were to say excellent and wave a wand and suddenly have the Tesla factory become a battery factory or a ventilator factory, uh, the larger thing that it is, I've shifted it and the machines inside have to change in order to continue to produce the thing. And the people inside of that need to change how they operate the machines in order to produce that thing which they generally do. And our unconscious operates not drastically differently from that. As our investments shift, the molecular and desiring machines shift and reorganize in various ways in order to continue to produce that uh, and make sure our desire is in line with those larger scale investments. The I'm, I'm not sure if, if we have the same understanding. I'm, I'm just like trying to piece stuff together, not to say something, you know, uh, too hasty or stupid, but... Uh... So please continue. <laughs> so each of the individual desiring machines doesn't have a goal or intention. Desiring machines on their own produce. It's what they do. Uh, they get laid out in specific orders in our unconscious or laid out in specific orders at a social level. And these are the things that become molar investments. But it's not that they become molar investments. It's that we have molar investments and it creates, uh, it sort of realigns desire in order to produce that. This is This is where I'm having... I guess the issue with the early parts of this section on is, uh, is I, I suppose, at a very basic under, uh, understanding of where our desiring machines, if they are, if everything is molecular and molar at the same time, and there's a simultaneity to that, then if every investment is therefore social and molar, it would reorganize in the same time our molecular and desiring machines. Okay, um, let's let's take concrete examples. Let's take uh, the family as a molar uh, aggregate and the species. Uh, so 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 the family is you know it, in in what you're you're conveying is a molar and there it's a site of molar investment. So basically, we are uh, investing uh, order into the family, but the family doesn't really exist. We 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 set it in motion by stating its existence. And by this, we organize the relationship between the entities that are forming this family. So, you know, father, mother, children, aunts, grandfather, you know, it, it can be really extensive. Um, and or the species, for example, uh, you know, we have we have uh, what we call uh, an elephant. But an elephant, you know, is a sub um, category of uh, a, a larger um aggregate as well so you know it's being it's a classification and it's you know we classify elephants by you know with having uh legs and ears and everything certain characteristic that makes it fit into being an elephant so you know uh into those two groups there's uh this this pre uh, uh how do you say this in english this pre presupposed order and then you know you can actually classify all the elements regarding if they fit or they have either a lack or you know or if they are a surplus so this this 
putting everything into this kind of order makes it that you know you will crush uh, the the differentiation of the minority by making it fit in. So the 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 Oedipal, um characteristic of the family, for example, will actually uh, reorganize desire and reorganize the the, the minoritarian um, becomings into you know uh, setting them towards the molar. Okay, so you're saying that the molar, the gregarious, leads to the selection of desires. Yes. But they specifically say on top of 344, the order is not gregariousness to selection, but on contrary, molecular multiplicity to forms of selection performing the selection to molar gregarious aggregates that result from the selection. And how I read that is that it's not that the gregariousness or the, the large form or the, the social investment is at any point the sort of starting point. Instead, it's, you know, 10,000 people uh, out of no, but that's exactly what I'm saying. The species does not exist and the family does not exist. It's being formed by the organization. And then it becomes a thing. It becomes a power. It becomes a pole. And then from there, you know, uh, the relations are being uh, organized. So it's always like, a, you know, okay. I don't like this word, but like it's a no okay. Let me let me try. It. Let me try. It. Let me try. Because I think I'm understanding what you're saying. Um, uh, what what an American is, let's say that uh, lots of people have different opinions on what an American is, who is an, inside of America. Uh, but at large, there is a generalized opinion of American exceptionalism, the ability to bomb other countries, all kinds of things. These these are formed by lots of different people having these yes. opinions. And because you bomb people, you are American. That's the way to see it. So the forms yeah. of the selection uh, begin performing the selection. And at that point... The molar or gregarious aggregates can be named, and they result from that selection process. That that determines ultimately what an American is. So it's uh, the molecular multiplicities, all of the desiring machines clumped together. Uh, we take generally on average what they believe for X. X then selects other things that are doing X, kind of replicating itself. And at that point, the molar or gregarious aggregate comes from that at a social level. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it be, when it becomes crystallized as a category, it becomes, it, it starts acting. And then, you know, there's modalities of, uh, of control, of surveillance that starts from there. So there's always like this, this kind of weird mix between the assemblage and the apparatus. And, but it's not the beginning, like the state is not the beginning. It's, it's modalities of control that has been like established to uh, organize relation that have become the state. And then the state as a, you know, as a structured resulting from this organization of power and relation, you know, acts back. So that's, that would be the same for any kind of formation that is acting on the molar level. So again, we get back to the idea essentially that gregariousness, uh, I don't, I don't want to say doesn't exist because that's not the way to put it, but that it isn't uh, the impetus behind these things. Instead, that's actually the molecular multiplicity and the law of averages that determines what ultimately is that gregariousness. Yeah, but they make the difference between the molar and the molecular. So there's there's always like a, I don't know, like it, they don't explain it that way, but there's a, there's like a threshold that you pass as a molecular that becomes molar. So it's, it's, you know, where you find yourself into the statistical aggregate. Am I at least making a little bit more sense now? I think I'm understanding you. 
Yeah, it's it's tough, you know, because the problem of the species, and I've been like dwelling on this for a little while because we were working on taxonomies and stuff, and and you know, and it, we understand species, you know, as um, an individual would be an expression of the species category, like like an individual elephant would be the expression of something that we presuppose that exists, which is uh, a species, but the species. In this, it it doesn't ex, uh, exist materially. The elephant exists materially, and you know it's the aggregate of uh, individual or certain characteristic that constitute the species. But every <laughs> it every, every specific elephant is uh, not the expression of a species. You know, because the species is just a category. Well, it's it's uh, it it feels like this is um, not to sort of dive to another subject, but this feels like the kind of discussion we could have around what whiteness is, um, because that's a I mean, race is such a fascinating thing at a social level, but you know, whiteness doesn't exist. It's a it's a fungible thing that shifts over time based upon lots of different things that are happening within society. It doesn't have a natural existence. Yeah. So, you know, if we want to, I think that would could lead to problematic uh, <laughs> discussions. But let's, let's take gender. You know, it's something that has been mapped. And, you know, there's a whole cartography of gender. It's like, you know, the, the, the queer criticism of gender says that, you know, we're always moving. We're always molecular. But we are being moved uh, towards the molar aggregate of the man or the woman. So queerness is, you know saying that we are molecular beings with certain expression that don't have to fit with the normative categories. You know, that, that, that I think that's an easy example. Gender exists in the sense that we created it, and those molar aggregates, they exist because they are statistical aggregate, and then they become acting forces into controlling the expression of, you know, uh, the intensities in everybody's. I don't know if this is help. This will help, but um, I'm going to use a something that my uh, my college economics prof actually gave me. So we can read this in terms of gregarious. We can read this in terms of steps. First, gregariousness, then selection, or we can read this in terms of implication. That is to say, molecular multiplicity implies that there are forms of selection performing the selection which also implies molar or gregarious aggregates that result from the selection. The reason I'm saying this is like, where we find the elephant, right? And, and I don't mean the elephant in this category, but the elephant as like the, the um, molar assemblage in that sense, right? As a kind of social machine in that sense. We have that, and then we have the molecular of the desire machines that make all that, that, that are interrelated with that regime, right? And that way you have the two working back on each other. So, right, like what the elephant is in the, in the molar sense works upon the molecular in the same way the molecular works upon that molarity. The, the trick is really, I think, that it's not like there's an essence of the elephant any more than there's necessarily like a categorical transcendence of the elephant. Um, any other questions before we move on to the second thesis? Anyone here, really? I know it's just... Four of us so far talking, but really anyone is free to talk. It's okay. Okay, so 
I think that uh, in order to understand this question you're talking about, you have to go back to Simondon and and realize that Simondon posits that there are pre-individuals and the trans-individual on either side of the individual level. And so the desiring machines are the pre-individual level and the socius is the trans-individual level. So, so, so the socius is not the category of society. That's why Simondon talks about the trans individual because it's not the category of society, and um, but the pre individual is prior. You know, the autogenesis occurs, and the and the uh, and the individual arises out of the uh, the pre individual. But the pre individual never goes away. So the pre individual is always there, um, uh, and that's where all the new. Uh, connections in the rhizome come from is uh, from the from this kind of virtual uh, particles, virtual relations of the pre-individual that are always there as a background for any particular connection between desiring machines in the rhizome. And so it seems to me that this 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 question of Gregarian, gregariousness versus the desiring machines. The whole idea here is that um, that whatever the social formation is, that what we're asked to do is go back and look at the desiring machines that are the real things that are operating, that are producing that molar um, configuration. And and that and it seems to me that that's the key point. Thank you, Kent. Um, Tiernan has a, a great question. Uh, can someone say more on the differentiation between the socius and social? Um, so, you know, the social, you know, in sociology is a category, right? But, but, but by the socius, the, they don't mean the social. Because uh, they they mean the molar formations themselves that we categorize by sociality, but those categorizations are abstractions and simplifications of the the real probabilistic interaction that's happening that's producing this apparent molar phenomena of the family, for instance, and 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 it's not the it's not the the elephant it's the elephant. Uh, as a group of mammals, that is the uh, corollary of the family. the The individual elephant is, uh, you know, is not the proper corollary there. You know, the 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 elephants have their molar uh, configuration of their elephant family, and the humans have their human family. Those are molar. Uh, organizations that are trans-individual, but swarming around them is always the pre-individual so that new desires can always come into effect and change what's actually the actual phenomena that's being categorized. And, and it's that, that last part that I've always understood the socius to be the place where desire gets coded and decoded, like how, how desire gets sort of messed with like that that place because a desire exists at the 
uh, unconscious level, at some point it needs to move into being coded, being uncoded, recoded, whatever that is. And the socius operates as that place that these things ha that that happens. Whereas the social is the sort of large scale interaction between people and desiring machines. Yeah, the so the social is meant to be a category. Yeah, by which like sociologists would study what's going on in society. Um, and that's supposed to be a sui generis kind of like phenomena that a science can look at. But whatever the categories that the science comes up with, there's a real phenomena going on there in, in, that's different in every family, which are these molar um, uh, structures of the, of the socius, which are trans-individual. And those things are constantly changing. So what you have to look at, I think, in uh, uh, schizoanalysis is given, given a particular family and their molar relations that are changing on a daily basis, you know, what are the desires that are being expressed at any given time and how do they connect with each other? But those are based on this uh these pre-individuals which are really at the in wild being and those pre-individuals are the constant connections between partial objects that become these uh desiring machines and the 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 metaphysical premise of Deleuze and Guattari is that it's it's, it's uh desiring machines all the way down to the perfect continuity that is the base condition. So it's a kind of relational monadology that is being projected as the structures that are under underlying all phenomena. Um, it's it's 100% part of them trying to get away from, uh, I would, I don't know, idealism for sure. I would say the transcendentalism that sort of has come before them that other uh, philosophers of this time were taking on. This idea that there's these large scale things that are eternal, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, there's shit, shit's happening in front of people. It's happening at a material level. Here's how it works. And uh, the socius is their way of saying, look, desire shifts over time. It changes uh, and it changes how it works. Like the socius think of it as uh, not so much a desiring machine, but kind of a meta machine that makes machines uh, and organizes them. And how, how does that get organized? Uh, originally, the earth uh, did it because of the things and the way things were set up very basically. And then the despot was the reason that machines existed and how they moved. And now it's capital, uh, the the almighty dollar or whatever, that, that that is the socius that determines how our desire gets decoded, recoded, moved around that meta machine that does these things. Uh, and it does it at a material level inside of our unconscious is is my understanding of the term. Well, I, I think one of the things we have to remember is that uh, just prior to this time, uh, people were getting, you know, because phenomenology was um, uh, in full bloom, um, you know, people were um, uh, getting away from, you know, uh, making metaphysical claims. And so Deleuze and Guattari kind of switched around and said, we're not afraid to make a metaphysical claim like Leibniz did in his uh, 
in his monadology or Tarde did for society or Herbart did for for uh, for psychology. They all created monad monadisms. Uh, and Deleuze and Guattari says, we're going to make a monadism, but it's going to be a relational monadism. Basically, we're going to see everything as desiring machines. And so then they fit that into this uh, this uh, model of uh, Hemslev in order to be able to coordinate the view of the desiring machines versus the socius. Anyway, you know, I mean, I think that's a way of looking at it to kind of try to get an overview of what's going on here. Because I, I think I think we have a problem uh, a lot of times of the seeing the forest for the trees. We get we get lost in the trees. And some every once in a while we have to step back and say, what are these guys trying to do that is different from what you know other philosophers are trying to do? And I think one of them is that they're going back to making metaphysical claims that there is a mo there is a relational monadology at the basis of everything. I am going to try to push us into uh, the second thesis. After that, we're going to cut that discussion there. I think we can have it another time. Uh, but I, we can we could spend hours on this, and I'm trying to get to uh, at some point actually describing what's in this section. I think we'll get there at some point. The second thesis uh, that uh, comes up uh, is within social investments, we distinguish the unconscious libidinal investment of group or desire, the pre-conscious investment of class or interest. The pre-conscious investment of class or interest passes by way of large social goals. It concerns the organism and collective organs, including arranged vacuoles and la of lack. This is one that when we were reading, I said we have to come back to because I fully don't grasp it. Uh, would someone like to take a crack at explaining it? Because I have the Holland explanation here and I'm happy to dive in. All right, I'll give it a shot. Uh, to just read Holland, and I'm reading from his uh, analysis of it, page 102. Uh, what he's saying is, uh, desire. what desire invests, first of all and most fundamentally, is not this or that object, nor this or that objective, goal, but a degree of development of force. Even though such force is usually most easily and widely accessible through the power structure or form of sovereignty that developed and organized it. Um, he has a, as examples. Capitalism is unusual, if not unique, in that its market mechanisms sometimes grant access to the productive forces of capital outside the established structures of power. The degree of development of force is primary. For what, the, that, for what that force is used for, its goals, aims, and corresponding interests of those invested in it, is strictly secondary. It will always get rationalized ex post facto, after the fact. Desire and interests coexist, and interests have an undeniable role to play, for it is under the cover of aims and interests that desire invests the social full body. Nonetheless, the fact remains, this is his quote, the fact remains that there exists a disinterested love of the social machine, of the form of power, and of the degree of development in and for themselves. And it is this love or desire, however absurd or rational, that is determinate. I've, after reading this last night, I've, I'm going to continue to make uh, declarative statements that make me look like an ass, so feel free to uh, tell me in the chat that once again you don't understand me. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Uh, if anyone has a better explanation of this, um, ultimately, I, what they're saying by the second uh, thesis is that uh, at 
at first, desire exists and desire doesn't really care where it goes. It is a force that that is able to be generated. The machines that it generates put it inside of a certain direction and that at the pre-conscious level, uh, investment or class and interest is purely secondary. Now, the develop the degree of that force and where it can be utilized is what is sort of done at that pre-conscious level. But desire uh, is desire comes before that, that uh, we can't start at class investment. We actually have to go deeper. Yeah. So a lot of this is responding to like the use of. So we all know, like for the Marxian sense, right, we can the analysis can start and sort of end that ideology, right, which for them is this pre-conscious thing. So, right, we can talk about, well, that's just your ideology talking. And you can, you can do that. But the, the, there then becomes a problem there, right? Where does the ideology even come from? And how was the ideology actually, right? Because now you're arguing sort of that the ideology is playing itself out through the person. And that can get you into some troubles here. Um, especially because the ideology sort of seems transcendent there. But to your point, Brutz, yeah, I think Deleuze and Guadi are trying to say, right, those, what you're, what's actually happening is, right, goals and things like that, rationalizations, those themselves are produced and they're sort of produced on top of what's happening. So, right, in order to, this is where they make the point about, like, something can be pre-consciously revolutionary. So we can talk about a revolutionary idea, ideology to be a Bolshevik. To be for the cause, and I'm being specific here, right? Because what they're attacking here too, I think, is something of a gregariousness um, within, like, to sort of idealize the group in this manner, right? To be for the cause or for the goal, uh, in contrast to like how this is all being produced and what's kind of underlying it, or more simply, to to your point about class. Class is not a natural thing. It's not as though we're all middle class or lower class or anything like that, right? It's not a natural category that we find ourselves in, right? These are codes and territorialities that um, are unconsciously occurring and that we find ourselves produced sort of po- um, within. Oh, shoot, Brutzi, <laughs> I was trying to respond to you. Um, okay. Does, it, does everyone understand what I'm saying? Oh, Brutz is back. Brutz, did you catch what I was saying? No, I didn't. I had to use the restroom. Okay. So what I was saying is, like, to your example of, like, the classes and that, it's not as though we naturally exist in classes or that classes are a pre-conscious thing. So, like, in terms of ideology, right? It's not that it's your proletarianism speaking any more than an ideology is speaking, right? So this is to say, right, it's not as though we can criticize someone for being a Bolshevik. And in that sense, right, criticizing Bolshevikism in terms of an ideology that's playing out through the person or the individual uh, or even the group necessarily. Because that Bolshevikism, or more directly, like the codes and the territorialities that are actually present, as opposed to something like a transcendent identity of the group. Um, those are what's for Deleuze and Guattari are making any of that even possible in the first place. So something like being for the cause or being for goals, all these goals are, are, are sort of created, right? They're produced. It's not that they're naturally there or that one must take them for granted with an ideology. Uh, their point seems to be getting at 
only how these are produced, right? And therefore getting away from just like just doing an analysis of ideology in order to make the argument here. Their point seems to be to get at how the um how codes and territorialities, right? How intensities and effects are actually playing out unconsciously. And in that sense, right, what's underneath the goals or the justifications, right? In terms of like just talking about a rationalization through the preconscious, they want to get at what's happening um, sort of beyond that or more directly what's happening unconsciously. Yes, because ultimately the, the thing that is happening in the unconscious after the fact, they're able to justify it. They, they have these pre-conscious investments that, according to the first theses, are ultimately generated by the large aggregate gregarious stories. Uh, and they may be oppressive. They may be, they generally are, but they may not be oppressive. But, but you're able to justify your place within them after the fact, after you've already had the desires sort of developed. Is there a way for us to go beyond that and step further into what the actual person wants and how? Put forward yeah and you know like let's go back to like the uh, criticism of psychoanalysis that they're putting you know when they say oh you know the psychoanalysis uh, uh psychoanalyst uh, lays you on the couch and tells you to say daddy and say mommy and then you're cured because you know you you re-entered the the order the correct order that they're trying to impose on you and you know when we're talking about gender is the same kind of thing you know the moment you say men the moment you say women is like you recognize the transcendent identity and then you know you you abide by it so you you obey the code that is being uh, conveyed by this this uh, this form of molar aggregate well it's it's the the hilarious uh, juxtaposition we're seeing now in sort of the extreme right where they carry the don't tread on me flags as their protesting to support the police like weird things like that that you can say that they have this pre-conscious class interest they have this they're able to justify whatever they want after the fact but what is the thing they're actually hoping for at their desiring machine level and they're able to find these things to coincide they just uh they they, they may coincide uh, but they they aren't one and the same I guess is their ultimate stance here is that the desire comes before. Yeah, I'm not sure about the example, though, because, you know, in the Marxist sense, it would just be like a false consciousness kind of thing or like, you know, a misinterpretation of uh, history or of symbols. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, like the the uh, the alt-right, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a white people desire, you know, that's that's what it is. So it's a complete reactionary and paranoid reaction. And, you know, it, what it tries to do is to reinforce the molar aggregate that is already uh, in place as a form of like white supremacy or, you know, a white leaning system. And uh, they're going to use the symbols to actually justify their, their position. But, uh, yeah, it's like, um, it's, it's either like you take the formation of the Proud Boys, for example, as what they do, what they say, what they stand for. And how they organize and where they're from versus, uh, you know, starting from a systemic point of view saying, oh, the Proud Boys are the expression of the system. But maybe that the system is just an aggregate of, you know, Proud Boys in a more invisible form. Yeah, and that would be, and that's exactly what I think they're attacking is like 
or at least I don't want to say attacking, that's what they're kind of criticizing and I think kind of moving away from is like the Marxian false consciousness or like the the ideology. Because that would be the thing, right? Is you we can say, well, your justifications are like, you know, um a misstatement of ideology and all that, right? But I think what they're trying to move away from there is, is that very act, which is to say like, you know, the justifications and that. Um, in terms of something like justice, right, which is what what those groups and what I hear you saying, Rogers, right, what they're talking about are justifications like, uh, you know, racial supremacy or, um, you know, whether it's class interest, whether it's the police for us and that. And I think what they're getting at is what makes all that possible? How does that like what's underneath those justifications, right? So and they. They're very critical here, directing this not only at like uh, those kind of movements, but they want to they they take the pain to criticize what appears to be revolutionary movements here too, such as the Russian Revolution, the Leninist break. So on on three forty four, after they make that move, they write revolution. Or let me back up. Uh, the situation this situation is not at all adequate, however, for resolving the following problem. Why do many of those who have or should have an objective revolutionary interest maintain a pre-conscious investment of a reactionary type? And more rarely, how do certain people whose interest is objectively reactionary come to affect a pre-conscious revolutionary investment? Sorry, this would be like changing the ideology, right? Must we invoke, in the one case, a thirst for justice, a just ideological position? as well as a correct and just view, and in the other case of blindness, the result of an ideological deception or mystification, revolutionaries often forget or do not like to recognize that one wants and makes revolution out of desire, not duty. So right here, they're making it, I think, really clear that it's not as though someone's obeying um, like a, a maxim above them. There's something desiring that's, to use like the Holland term, that's uh, there's a force acting upon them. They're being pushed a certain way. They're being produced in that manner. They go on to write, here is elsewhere the concept of ideology is an execrable concept that hides the real problems, which are always of an organizational nature. If right at the very moment he raised the most profound of questions, namely, why do the masses desire fascism? was content to answer by invoking the ideological, the subjective, the irrational, the negative, and the inhibited. It was because he remained the prisoner of derived concepts that made him fall short of materialist psychi- of the materialist psyche, the materialist psychiatry he dreamed of that prevented him from seeing how desire was part of the infrastructure and that confined him in the duality of the objective and the subjective. So if we take the Proud Boys, for example, and we, you know, criticize the ideological aspect of saying, oh, the Proud Boys are, you know, the result of white supremacy. So they are enacting this kind of, you know, ghost in the machine into uh, marching the street and taking uh, taking a, a, a stance in front of, you know, the BLM protesters that are actually... Uh, would be striving for, you know, would be an expression of f- the fairness of uh, an equality system. It's, and then we reverse it, saying that it's desire. The desire on one side is not to be killed anymore. 
It's, you know, not to live in poverty anymore, not to be discriminated anymore. It's a, it's a will to live. It's a will to existence. While the Pride Boys are a will to maintain power, a will to do as they were doing prior to the expression of dissent into by the BLM. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not this, this ideological cathedral that is over us that tells us to act this way. It's our desire is being blocked by the other. And we, we tend to uh, have, you know, we take, we take actions in, in, in front of this blockage so we can, you know, we can liberate our own flux. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because for them, at least for Deleuze and Guadri, we can talk about what they say their goals are. We can talk about any organization's goals. But that's not going to help us understand what, they're, what they want to do when they're doing it. Yeah, but the goal right. is already secondary. Because the goal is the rationalization of desire. And, and that's my point. So, so we can talk about goals and all that, but that's not going to help us understand what it is these groups are doing and why they're desiring what they're doing. So I agree with you. Someone was talking. Who was that? I, I just like to say that um, I think a, a way of thinking about this is, um, you know, the question of, well, you know, what do you do on your, in a daily basis and what do you pay attention to? And what does society pay attention to uh, through the media and so forth? And, and so that that's continually changing, right? But but what you pay attention to is driven by these desires. They're kind of like an expression of the desires. And what you pay attention to either reinforces the, uh, the, the aggregates that are already in place as an assemblage or, 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 or it reforms them. Well, and, and it's the reforming them that I'm, I'm really interested in. And I really attached to when we were reading it the first time, because the idea that, uh, as they say, uh, the unconscious and preconscious can actually be opposing each other almost, where the the unconscious desire might be revolutionary, but because of how it's sort of carried underneath the investment uh, or the preconscious sort of class interest, it can be turned into a reactionary, uh, very much the reactionary pull. Um, it's it's a I don't know. I have I have some a lot of opinions about what's happening on the Trump side of things or the Trump followers and their sort of general mentality. Um, and it's not so much that they're being tricked at all. I, I, I side with that. But part of what they talk about here is essentially the idea that even if with revolutionary power or desire or whatever it may be, that's sort of sitting there, the investments that allow a person to expand their power or the intensity of that to the greater degree uh, the degree of that force, the degree of development that, that that interest allows in the desire is ultimately what really attracts people, that there's a, feels almost like um, a fish will grow to the size of the fish tank you put them in. My desires will grow to fit whatever tank you end up putting it in as well. Well, it produces them. Right. And, and that can be sometimes hard here because it's, it's not necessarily that the people are choosing to be proud boys in the sense that they're finding themselves produced as not, which is kind of a strange way of talking about it because we want to talk about like the intent, right? Like they, they are intending to do this, 
or like you know, there's a uh, they're trying to accomplish these goals. But this almost flips it to say they're produced in a certain way that might be in favor of those goals, but that's not necessarily why they're doing it. Because you know what's what's at the basis is necessity all the time. You know, whether wherever you are on the political spectrum, you will act out of necessity, and then you will rationalize this action into either a project, set of goals, or an infrastructure, or an organization. And, you know, on one of the articles that I'm writing on right now, uh, it's a person into an institution, and the person wants to live, wants freedom, you know, wants to be mobile, wants to go out, wants to do things, to go work, you know, have sex, whatever else, and be free. And so there's there's this necessity that makes freedom and liberty at the center of his existence. And, you know, if he was not into the institution, he would never think like that. But because of the necessity that he's put in, the condition in which he, he is, desire will organize itself, you know, to go outside the walls. And to go outside the walls, there's a necessity of, you know, organizing um, new conditions. So, you know, he puts out a, a new cooperative of, you know, assisted living. You know, he devises all this thing as like a war machine to actually go against the state and say, hey, there's there's alternatives, there's, there's other possibilities, and I will take them, you know. And there's the whole action that is going um, going on from, from this organization and from his will to uh, live outside. But, you know, we can, in, in a classical political um, science or anthropological understanding, you know, we will try to, like, see the goals, understand the goals and the principles and the values and everything. But from a delusion perspective, we start from the necessity and we see how the conditions are being created of the expression of desire in a certain modality. And, but it's, it's like seeing it on reverse. So if we, if we take BLM, if we take the alt-right, if we take any social movement, it kind of works like that also. You know, there's, a, there's the pre-individual drive that actually creates the individual with their desires. Their desires are being expressed into a certain form. And, you know, they will identify with whatever uh, that is in front of them because they're already constituted as, you know, an equivalent to this, um, to this category. So it... it it's 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 really taking um you know what we considered as normal into an analysis and like reversing it completely by starting by with the desire and the flux instead of starting with categories or any transcendental regime um you know that put the etheric form in front of the material uh forms or or necessities yeah if you if you think about it in in, the, in terms of like attention um you can see that you know what each individual pays attention to is um, motivated by 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 their desires and what the what what all of the other uh, molar groups pay attention to are motivated by their desires and so and so what's interesting about this is that attention can change very quickly and become something different and start building up other structures than the structures that we assume have such permanence because all we have to do is change our attention and build other structures instead because we desire that and those others just will start disintegrating because no one's paying attention to them 
Mm-hmm. And and by bringing the concept of attention, you know, you're bringing in Heideggerian philosophy. And into the ontology of Heidegger, for example, there's a dwelling is to actually go into the sense of the earth and, you know, or it, having this form of contemplation uh, and, you know, and finding some harmony with the the, the, the the ontological sense of the world. But what's different in Deleuze and Guattari is that they're saying there's no essential um, thing that we put we should put our attention to. You know, we put attention um, because we are produced a certain way. And then, you know, the revolutionary break is to put the attention elsewhere and, you know, create um, an output for this, um, for the desire to go through this attention, but also the creation of, you know, the object of the attention. And, you know, another example for this, because I worked on this, you know, the concept of dwelling with disability. you know, there's there's the body without disabilities kind of dwelling. You know, we have a certain order of the world. You know, we have a house. We have the place to work, the grocery store and everything. And it's being constructed on uh, the base of the body with, with eyesight, earring, you know, uh, being able to walk, being able to go from one place to another. We create vehicles for that. Uh, but what is it to dwell um, differently for people with disabilities? And how do we create a society uh, differently according to the necessities of uh, different bodies? And and it's a really simple thing, but like it questions the ontology of normal society by, you know, allowing all those molecular becomings uh, to to be expressed into, I could say like an utopian form, but as projects and... um, so yeah, it, it really depends how you put your attention because you know, like when you're doing um, stuff in your daily life, if you're able-bodied, uh, there's many things you don't see. But when your body starts to be different, uh, you will put attention to different things, and the the, the city or the place you live uh, is is it 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 takes a different form. You know, you live into a different world. Your perspective is completely different. So the minoritarian perspective makes it that, you know, you will see the structure of the world for what it is and you will propose alternatives. So your perspective can actually thrive. Yeah. I think that's a really good example because the way you can think about it is that, um, you know, the way society is, um, kind of constructed, it's projecting a certain bodily set of affordances and capabilities onto each person. And so if you don't have those capabilities and affordances, then suddenly there's this huge problem, like with the, uh, you know, when when they decided to put in ramps for people in wheelchairs and stuff like that. I mean, there were all kinds of places those people could not go because of the uh, the lack of the affordances, and so and so you know it's kind of like um, this is kind of similar to the body without organs idea is that you know all of us is written onto us this ideal body of capabilities that that we're supposed to have, and if our bodies just don't have those capabilities, then there's a disconnect there that is fundamental. 
And so then you have to then you have to think about it in terms of desire. And in in the case where the person is has disability, uh, you know they have desires to live their life, but they're running up against these um, barriers all the time. And and the the general society has this desire to uh, to make everyone the same, right? And and not to make allowances for people who don't have those. Afford the uh, same affordances and capabilities, mm -hmm. and that comes to like the concept of gender or race, also. You know, yeah. it's uh, the the minorities, um, the people who are <coughs> sorry, the people who are being minoritized, they don't have the same affordances. So basically, the system is like you know become more like you know the universal man or the universal white, and it's like. Uh, getting those people to act into a certain universal way to be integrated but you know this is the the the, the differentiation makes it that you know it it's not possible so you know to to uh break down the molar aggregate or the molar form of society to allow for uh those perspectives to be taken into account and to express themselves into their own way is you know at the base of the ontological of most of the, the minority groups. Yeah, what, one way of thinking about this is that there's this pressure downward by the whole society to project on everyone a certain, you know, category and and uh, and essence because of that category. But but then from the other hand, the 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 the. Uh, What's really going on with people is much more varied and differential than that. And so there's all this leakage where people don't fit into that essence that's being projected on them. And uh, and a lot of times those where there's leakages, there's there's barriers to prevent that. And and so people are kind of trapped in this uh, these these essential forms that are projected on them by society. And, and and a lot of people want to get out of that, but um, but it's very difficult to do that. But I guess schizoanalysis wants to look at exactly what are the desires on the one side to project this ideal schema on everybody, and what are the desires on the other hand that want to get outside of those uh, molds and barriers that are being projected on them. I think we did it for a circle. We're back to like where we started, but with somewhat of an explanation. I love that. So that was great. Thank you. We want to move on to libido and investment or straight to the third thesis. Uh, let's go ahead and do a libido and investment. Uh, this is uh, libido investment and sex, uh, basically playing around with the uh, notions and idea that uh, libidinal energy is uh, not sexual, sexual, always sexual, also sexual. What is that, huh? How does that work? So it's a, um, they say it a few times. Where is that quote? You guys know what I'm talking about. Where is it in here? Where they talk about sex as, um, or rather the sexual as something that's non-anthropocentric. Correct. I believe it's like two sections ago. No, no, I, in this section specifically, they, they re-reference that and they bring it up once again. I think it is a uh, 350. Uh, the discussion they begin on the situation is completely muddled. It seems that schizoanalysis can make use only of indices, machinic indices, and we're to discern at the level of groups or individuals the libidal investments of the social field. 
Now, in this respect, it is sexuality that constitutes the indices. Not that the revolutionary capacity can be evaluated in terms of objects, aims, or sources of sexual drives animating an individual or group. Surge, assuredly, perversions and even sexual emancipation give no privilege as long as sexuality remains confined within the framework of the dirty little secret. They then go on for a handful of paragraphs to essentially talk through how sex uh, operates as a series of flows, uh, uh, sort of utilizing Lawrence and Klosowski to talk through how sex is handled sort of in general and how love is handled and all of these fun things. And then they bring it back around to say that there is no difference between sexual and political desire. So to kick this off, one of the things we want to differentiate here, at least I think preliminarily, where they're talking about indices here, I believe that's them talking about love, which for them is an index um, of revolutionary and reactionary investments. So for them, when we're getting at love, they're trying to get at it in this unconscious sense of those very um, investments that they're trying to understand, which for them is, like Kent was saying, as a major part of schizoanalysis is to get at those investments. Uh, in terms of libidinal production or sexuality, right? Libidinal and uh, production, let me try that differently. Desiring production occurs in relation to those indices, right? So I, I think I compared it to like some uh, to Foucault and like um, the indices or the matrices he he evokes, but it's similar in that sense that um, desiring production does work with those uh, investments, which are collectively called love here. As I understand them, desiring production and more specifically sexuality and the sexual here, they don't mean it anthropomorphically or biologically. They mean it in terms of uh, what is productive, reproductive, and generative? No, I don't know where I came up with this question, so we're going to skip it. I'll edit this out too. Sorry, Jack. It was a good explanation, but I don't. There's just not enough discussion, and I don't trying to remember where I saw this, and I can't find it. Of the just focused on a brief example, um, and this goes to what we've been talking about. So they write, they write on 350, for example, no so-called gay liberation movement is possible as long as homosexuality is caught up in a relation of exclusive disjunction with heterosexuality. A relation that ascribes them both to a common edible and castrating stock, charged with ensuring only their differentiation in two non-communicating series, instead of bringing to light their reciprocal inclusion and their transverse communication and the decoded flows of desire. Uh, parentheses, included disjunctions, local connections, nomadic conjunctions. The reason I wanted to highlight this is we've kind of talked about this before, but what they're talking about in this sense is like, as long as we understand like sexuality through like, and this time I'm, I'm speaking more like uh, directly humanly, uh, in terms of the heterosexual and the homosexual and you're one or the other. And in, in, terms of, in terms of the Oedipal. In terms of the Oedipal. Yeah, which causes them to be Oedipal because you're either one or the other. And in that sense, it creates, right? A whole tension is created here because as soon as you find yourself becoming the other in this sense, you know, you're in a whole mess of trouble here. But in the same sense, to call yourself, uh, to always be bisexual in that sense gets into a problem too, because again, you're starting with a category, um, with a kind of essentialism, right? 
you have for them what they're talking about is the ability to kind of uh to move between these different things and find yourself uh constantly affected by their sort of interplay rather than like uh today i'm uh this tomorrow i'm that uh in the sense of like an exclusion they're constantly working upon you in this sense then again we get back to the idea that um they're just the sheer concept of woman or man as the quote they have uh, a woman is not a model anything she's not even a distinct or definite personality a woman is a strange soft vibration on the air going forth unknown and unconscious and seeking a vibration response or else she is a discordant jarring painful vibration going forth and hurting everyone and amanda's the same the idea that gender normativity in general are just these sort of you know floaty nice concepts that are around and we have the discussions around them but they aren't a thing to be worshipped or a thing to be uh the end of a goal uh, which is very much what oedipus does it places things as a goal uh it's it's you know take uh because they talk about language you know it's the same thing between language and a sentence you know the category of a gender is a sentence but language is the underlying uh, endless possibilities of organization of terms between them, you know, and gender is the same thing, you know, we, we are being organized into whatever way. And, uh, but we are being put into sentences. And I think that to say this into such a poetic way as, uh, <laughs> you know, it puts us into a carceral kind of thing of categories and identity. Identities as they were talking about that we seek because Ultimately, being part of a machine feels good and pleasure. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? And that's, and that's uh, more directly, I think that's what they're talking about in terms of the gregariousness or where they use the conformism, right? And the sense of like, you know, this is the, this is the paranoiac, right? To be of the master race is to be of the, of the right group in that sense. So, right, if you take out like the, you know, if we, if we want to talk about it differently in terms of like, you know, all of us know that we're not Aryans or whatever. It's to be in the right, it's to be in the majority, the majority, uh, to be in the power group in this sense. Uh, other thoughts? <laughs> no, I mean, this gets into the entire sort of takedown they have of a psychoanalysis, which I'm, I'm happy to go into. I don't know if it's quite necessary for our review, but this is his, this is where they start diving into the idea of, um, you know, Freud's, problem lacan points out the issue and the the original freudian problem of hey uh are you going to let me fix you and oedipalize you completely or are you going to become this awful you know persona non grata who can't function in society it's your choice it's perfectly fine i mean you know whatever you want to do one way i can make you healed and healthy and oedipalize you the other way i can destroy your life it's your call buddy it's it's that weird hilarious thing that freud does the false alternatives. Yeah, and you're going to be that way either. It's not as though you have a choice in that sense, right? It's the either or ionization again. Whether you, you know, in that sense, right, that it's a false choice because whether you do it or you don't, you're being bionivicalized. Uh, and the- we should be careful here too in the sense that, like, their takedown of psychoanalysis in the, is in the sense that they're trying to, like, de oedipalize psychoanalysis, right? And kind of take it somewhere new altogether, which is ultimately what schizoanalysis kind of seems to produce. The, the, the big takedowns, and I know Ken is in here, and I'm sure he'll have a lot uh, to respond to on this. Um, 
But, you know, their big takedown is that psychoanalysis comes in with here is the classifications people can fit into, and we will get you into one of those. And it doesn't take into, a, into account the millions of different things that have influences upon every single discussion analysis, the analyst and the analyst and have, uh, which they include in here, the flows of capital that exist between the two and the way that their interpersonal relations even began. So like the, the fact psychoanalysis sort of throws all that out and has these very, very rigid sets that it pushes people into rather than looking at all of the different potentialities for how a person's desiring machines can be affected, how we can get beyond just someone's interest into those unconscious desiring machines uh, is, is their is ultimately their large scale takedown of psychoanalysis. And I, that's a short version of it. Ken, do you have more thoughts? I mean, yeah, I suppose I could come up with a few. Hopefully they're helpful. Um, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the things that um, I find abrasive about psychoanalysis is that uh, it tries to be all-encompassing and in that venture ends up being entrapping. Uh, I like the stance at the beginning of the book where they sort of say that like this isn't going to be the new answer to everything and so on and so forth. This is sort of you know, just a, a a new way to view things and describe things. Like this isn't the final say all be all and everything. Whereas psychoanalysis doesn't really posit itself that way. Psychoanalysis posits its posits itself as a way to grab hold of capital T truth. And in this movement that mutes becomings. Um because then you've given all of these rules like ontological rules for being like like saying the subject is a nothing and uh and having very um specific views on alienation and separation insofar as what that means for like a definite dictatorial symbolic order um that that you can't get out of and that you're reliant on to uh like separate yourself from your alienation and, and narcissism and whatnot. And what I find is that like, so even in its movements to try to free people in a way, um, so like discussions on jouissance and whatnot, that ends up becoming all entrapping because now you become fixated on like everything is jouissance. Uh, uh, words don't have uh, meaning, but what, uh, gives words their meaning is the jouissance, and, and and so then everything becomes about jouissance, and then, and then you just get fixated on this thing again, or like or like you can only be neurotic, psychotic, or perverse. You literally can't be your 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 subject can't be structured or produced in any other way, and uh, and then you know you become convinced that this is how things are, this is what things are, and these are your choices. And now you start producing yourself in these ways. Um, and so this is where I really like Deleuze and Guattari's like, idea of lines of flight and whatnot. Um, and where I like this project of Antiotipus. Yeah, something that can be said that's interesting is that um, um, 
John Baez, who does the in-category theory, he was giving a lecture one time, and he was talking about how when they teach mathematics, uh, they 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 teach people to work with convergent series, and they don't even deal with divergent series, even though there are more divergent series than there are convergent series. And um, and so, you know, the idea of the line of flight is that you take one of those divergent series and see where you end up. And that, of course, is the way to get out of the strange attractors that are, you know, organizing the, the, the chaotic space uh, a lot of times. And so this idea of divergence uh, is, a, is a really interesting uh, concept that seems like Deleuze and Guattari are developing with lines of flight. And, and you know, another thing psychoanalysis does uh, that I find anti Oedipus, you know, and this may just be my projection, uh, anti Oedipus uh, doing is that uh, it totally crushes, like, not totally, but, you know, three fourths of the time, crushes the possibility for mystery, crushes the possibility for, like, a true radical alterity that can sort of bump you out of your enmeshment in a routine, whether that be like a routine of thought or like an actual habit out in the world or both, you know, I doubt they're actually separable. Um, but you, but it seems to me that like this, and I don't know, maybe I'm being disagreeable here. But it seems to me that like a certain measure of mystery uh, is necessary to be like gravitated towards things, to be pulled into things and to actually flow and move in life. And whenever you feel like you've gotten like the capital T truth, like that's when like, I guess you get this paranoiac investment thing where like becoming stop where, where everything is funneled into a specific category. And, uh, and there's no longer this, um, I don't know, infinite possibilities available. Um, that's essentially what the, I mean, uh, to me, that's essentially the difference between the paranoid schizophrenic poles and the way that molar investments operate. They, they exist in a place where they divert our knowledge into very, very specific coded things. Uh, Roger's earlier example of species, I think race, I think sexuality, uh, gender, all of these things are hyper-specific categories that enable us to know the world. And it's good. We have to know the world. We have to get around. But at some point when we start saying, well, this is actually the bedrock truth, that we see a lot of this today where there's, I don't want to say belief in ghosts is necessarily the way that there is, but this idea of mystery, this the areas we don't know or knowing where our knowledge stops is something that is becoming more and more difficult. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, the, I'm not sure I'm a fan of the Black Swan, the book, but one of the things I really liked in it is this idea of things we don't know that we know. Uh, this we, we tend to know things. We know stuff, but we're wholly unaware of how far the edges of those things go. And when we close out, um, when we close out things and we... Uh, sort of take two ideas and we remove the space between them because we've fully solved it as far as we're concerned. Those are where we start seeing these closed off uh, paranoiac experiences. 
And it's, uh, it, the thing is, ultimately, their argument is a lot of that stems from this, this sort of oedipalization of, uh, of life. Uh, we see it in America where, you know, you have the nuclear family. Here's how things are set up. This is the way families are intended to be. Uh, so much so to the point where, uh, I mean, that's how people justify, uh, you know, having uh, gay rights is where it's like, oh, no, we can, too, be Oedipal. Look, we're like a mother, father. I've seen this argument dozens of times. Where it's like, look, we're a mother and father, too, and we can take care of our kids. We can, the kids, be, you know, grow up the same. They, they're productive in society. And it's like, yeah, but you're just literally fitting into the Oedipal. You're, you're no... You have what you know, and it's that mass. And instead, it's about finding those mystery places where we don't understand things, or under, or admitting we don't know, and sort of exploring what that means for us. Yeah, I've served this, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this opinion as well, and I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been served back um, in the way that you know people are desiring their integration in society, and it's really weird to be like you know radical by any means and say oh you know we should let go of this and go elsewhere where no man or woman or whatever else has gone before um the with, with social movements for example what they want what people want is to be integrated they want to be adipalized but like is it is it really a bad thing and you know people want to be you know people People want prod property rights. That's why they get married because, you know, it allows the law, like gives you property rights and, you know, there's like taxation that is different and everything. That's what they want. They want to be able to make a living. So to be able to make a living, you need to be integrated into this legal, economical uh, kind of system. So, but that's the same thing with the, the edible, you know, like you need to to be edipalized, to function uh, a little bit in society as well. So to, to desire it and to... To ask for it is not uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, what I'm doing right now into the article that I'm writing, it's about this person, you know, that goes out to the institution. And what I'm saying is that there's a form of biopolitics, but what the person is asking is a different forms of biopolitics. The person is asking to for for their life to be um, taken into account. That services actually encounter their life to extend it, or I. I enable its uh, intensification. So basically, it desire a form of repression, uh, a form of organization to be able to thrive. So that's, that's, that's always like the weird moment where we're like, oh, you're being edipolite. That's not good. But at the same time, that's sometimes, you know, it's like therapy. It's the same thing. You know, oh, you go to therapy to be fixed. But at the same time, if some people don't have therapy or don't have the drugs, they will just drift more and more. And so I think that there's like a, a romanticism there that is um, a little bit dangerous of, you know, going full molecular. That is probably not the best thing to do or. No, no. And I, and I, again, it's the same thing as saying that their entire thing is saying that you need to become a schizophrenic in order to be a revolutionary. And it's like, no, that's not what they're saying. They're, they're about process. And I think that's what, you know, the last thing I want to make sure we hit on uh, is their discussions at length about art and science and the comparative sort of nature between the two, which is not something you see very often. But when they talk about the revolutionary potential of both, they talk about, they're talking ultimately about them both playing in that place of mystery that Ken was playing with, talking about the, the things we don't know. We have a process 
and the process takes us where it takes us. And we don't really know what's on the other side and we keep doing the process. And because of that, science and art have a, a huge potential for revolutionary change. And it's that sort of the neat because science is ultimately a process. And I mean, there is a hilarity to that now because it's difficult to say that, especially in America, where scientism has become almost non-process, but instead based on just being able to recite trivia and fact. That's not how that works either. Um, so, and uh, another thing that is interesting, uh, it's it's not into this book, but like uh, in the, in uh, Delors talks about it. It's called jurisprudence, and how you know uh, if we want to change society, if we want to do a revolution, it, we must set jurisprudence. But to set jurisprudence is to actually change the moral aggregate. So basically, there's this line of flight, you know, this kind of escape that we talked about uh, before as, you know, escaping the capture of the state. But to enable the capture of the state into a different manner allows for more moral becomings. So there's this it's it's like going against the system with its own tools. You know, it's like to to pervert the system into uh, allowing a differentiation. So that's that's another level of it. Yeah. And and when he talks about the jurisprudence there, right, he's talking about how to how to develop the, the territory, right, so as to change what's happening. Yeah, totally. So like, you know, we we've talked about the molar um escape before but like escape to where <laughs> you know it's a is it like an escape to an outside or to the margin not really it's an escape back to the center is to take the center and create a territory into a different manner you know it's to to deterritorialize de and re-territorialize and not by the state but by the molecular uh becomings yeah because they follow one another right where we have the molecular we have the molar so in changing the territory right and allowing for a line of escape, or allowing for a production of differentiation in that sense. Yeah. So, like, if take take example of the U.S. Like, super simple example, um, healthcare into the U.S. Even if healthcare, you know, you you can have like Black Panther healthcare, you know, like do your little community and like try to uh, have projects to actually see to the health and the the, the welfare of people. But at the same time, you know, and people with disabilities were doing this and queer people were doing this also. But there's a moment that that needs to be universalized and go back into the state. And um, if you change the state by, like, taking it out of his ontological capitalist, you know, uh, take care of yourself, nobody will take care of you uh, form of ontology. And you move it to a more caring or, you know, more socialist form of uh, being together by integrating welfare into the state, it will trickle down and change completely the way the people live. And this will allow for more possibilities. So inequalities on an economic level will start to shift because you know people will have access to healthcare, they'll be healthy and they'll be able to work and not be sick anymore. So it but but this is you know this this is the molecular demands that are being brought back into the molar and changes um, the structuration or the infra infrastructure of the state that in turn changes the possibilities of becoming because necessities are being changed in the way. 
So, you know, to do a revolution is not only to, like, you know, turn the state over completely. It's to make the state act into a different manner. To, to change the molar in that sense. Because it's not... Well, uh, I agree with you, but it's not always the state in that sense. For instance, if we were to talk about, like, institutions or infrastructure, there is a way in which the state can relate to that. But the, the state is not the... It's not the only thing present. Oh no, no no! I'm just taking this in you know in my own examples. So we also, and I've mentioned this before. There's always they seem to also caution like with the with changing the molar in a sense because at least as I read them, they want to change. If we're going to change the molar, it's in relation to the molecular and in relation to the unconscious here. So I give the example of Richard Wolff with the idea of like uh, worker co-op making everybody a, um, a shareholder in that sense. And then, you know, d eliminating the distinction in that sense, everybody's a worker shareholder. Um, but I also suspect that this could be an instance where the pre-conscious is at play here in the sense that, you know, are we, aren't you just trying to place them into a new category in the sense And yes, you will open up new powers you will change things, but don't you also risk reproducing or to use the term earlier, integrating them even deeper into that thing from which they might otherwise uh, be able to escape. Yeah. And then, you know, you come to the, what Zizek is saying, you know, modernity was like, you know, actually frank about the power relations and then postmodernity switched this around uh, in the sense that Walmarts are like, what what are they called now? Like partners or like, you know, partial invest. I don't know what's the what's the name of the workers, but, you know, they're like contributors to this old fucking like big machine. It, but it, it's an insane kind of like category shift. And, you know, it's it's a it's a shift on the discursive level, but on the um, the material level of how power is exercised and exploitation is happening. It doesn't change much, you know. Well, it's the, I mean, the best example of that in the world is Disney. Anyone who works at Disney, even corporate, calls themselves cast members. So everyone feels like a star. And I'm not joking when I say it. Everyone calls each other cast members, not employees. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. And there you have the instance of recoding and re-territorializing, right? But I think this is like a partial recoding. This is not the full... Um, recording in the sense that it changes well like no it no it, it makes sense because it changes the relationship that people have to their work and uh, between themselves so you know this this false sense of uh, it creates a false sense of integration yeah it's reproductive in that sense right you're reproducing what you supposedly what you're leaving by changing the signs in this sense is actually just the reproduction of what you're what you've said you're leaving right so like in your, your example, this is Jack or Disney, right? You're trying to suggest that they're all part of the cast, right, as workers. And you can maintain that, right, uh, through signs. That's, that's very possible. You can, you can um, organize that kind of coding process. But in doing so, right, like, how is that any different than what they were previously, right? I mean, I understand the sign value. I understand the, the code and the surplus value of code there. But where's the differentiation? I'm reading what uh, Brooks has just posted about cast members of Disney. It's they say <laughs> they say like employees at Chick Fil A and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chains. Cast members are trained to be as positive and as nice as possible. 
to both the young and young at heart. Any negativity and or mistreatment of any kind, such as swearing, yelling, punching, slaps in the face, etc., by cast members to guests is not tolerated and usually result in termination. If it, uh, yeah, it's yeah. The U.S. is fucking weird. <laughs> but it, it was genius. That's a, a old Walt uh, said that everyone at the Disney parks were part of a play, and so he started calling them all cast members. And that extended to Disney corporate. So even in like their corporate offices, everyone's a cast member. Big deal to them. And they really, really make sure they say it, no matter who you are. It's really, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. And fit in with. Um, we are nearing the end of our time. Uh, we are probably going to have another one of these discussions tomorrow. But before we go, does anyone have any last questions or things they want us to cover today? about the text. I will wait for a moment, please. You can type it, you can unmute yourself, whatever it is. All right, well, no questions. I'm gonna go ahead and close out today. Uh, I think we kind of hit into most of the major ones in this final section. Uh, I think we could obviously rabbit hole down most of them. Uh, but if there's any questions, don't hesitate to drop it into the follow-up questions chat here. And keep an eye out uh, for our upcoming discussions on the big things like what is a body without organs? What is a full body? What is a clothed body? What are bodies? How did that? What is a body? I mean, we'll just start there. A lot of stuff to dig into. So um, with that, thank all of you for joining us today. And uh, thank all of you for uh, talking who did, uh, typing who did.